Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We are back in our, our book of Ezekiel that we're going through. We'll be in chapter 24. John O'Neill was an FBI agent in the 1990s. More than anyone else in the agency, he spent time investigating the terrorist group known as Al-Qaeda and the links between them and attacks on U.S. interests around the world, including the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center buildings. The more O'Neill dug into the shadow world of international terrorism, the more he began to warn anyone in Washington, D.C. that would listen that Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden were major threats to the United States. Throughout the 1990s, with the first attack on the World Trade Center buildings, the attacks on the U.S. uh, embassies, and the attack on the U.S. coal, all being linked to Al-Qaeda, O'Neill and his predictions were turning out to be true. Unfortunately, for various reasons, his warnings were largely and continuously ignored, or only heeded in part. By August of 2001, he had left the FBI. O'Neill resigned to take the job as head of security for the World Trade Center buildings. Despite taking the job there, he still felt it could be an Al-Qaeda target. He was still monitoring activities coming out of Afghanistan and felt in his stomach that the attack was coming and it was coming soon. He had good reason to feel this way. Just before he left the FBI, O'Neill was closing in on the trail of several leads, leads linking terrorist groups coming out of Yemen into the United States. Information from a terrorist suspect the FBI was tracking should have been setting off red lights and and warning lights to those who would listen. But his previous warnings and the warnings of a few others that were still in the FBI monitoring Al-Qaeda activity, again, went largely ignored. On on September 11, 2001, John O'Neill was in the South World Trade Center building working when that second plane hit. He survived the initial impact of the plane... He called his wife to tell her conditions were terrible, but he was making his way out of the building. He never made it. His body was later found in one of the stair towers of the south building, and on that day, he along with 2,976 other people died as a result of the Al-Qaeda attacks on U.S. soil. Despite warnings for years that this type of attack was probable, the U.S. was still not expecting it, nor prepared for it. Yet it came. Our passage before us tells us tonight of a people warned for much longer and much more clearly of an attack that would come at the hands of the Babylonians. They were warned by not some feeble man tied with an agency. They were instead warned by God Himself over and over and over Yet they chose to continue to live in delusion instead of reality. They continued to live believing that this would not happen instead of believing God's Word, which has proven true over and over and over. The name of my sermon then is The End of Delusion. The End of Delusion. Let's read verses 1-14. through We will cover the entire chapter tonight, but we'll begin verses 1-14. through In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, 
Put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it. Into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord. Now this chapter will end what has been a long section of prophecies against Jerusalem and Judah as a whole, but specifically Jerusalem. These chapters, spanning from chapter 4 all the way to this chapter, again, have been spelling out detailed warnings over and over from God that judgment was coming for their sin, for their wickedness at the hand of the Babylonians. Here in verses 1 through 3, I'll term it 3a, we see that the time has come. God's repeated and constant warnings of judgment are over. And the siege of Jerusalem, the captivity of the Judeans, and the cleansing of God's people is at hand. Judgment was no longer some future warning, but instead it was a present reality. Now remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. And the vast majority of the believing remnant is there as well with him, but he is still sent here, we're told, to the rebellious house. So the majority of the people there, the captives there in Babylon, they still were in rebellion against God's Word. They still did not believe God's Word, Ezekiel and his prophecies. They still seemed to believe these false prophets instead. But Jerusalem would fall despite these false prophets testifying otherwise. Captivity would not be temporary in the sense of they were not about to go back in a couple of years. God was really upset with Judah and the people of Judah, and He was not happy with them. Again, all opposite of what the people, the false prophets there had continuously told the people there in Babylon. So Ezekiel is sent to inform those in captivity here that God has made good on His promise. The prophecies given to us here, really from chapters 20 through 23, we're all likely given in the seventh year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. We know that from the prophecy beginning in chapter 20. It took place in that year and it follows that the next three chapters would take place. But we see here in our chapter, chapter 24, that a new date and a new time are given. And these new, this new date, this new time is, is a very significant date. Two years after the prophecies began there in chapter 20, Ezekiel again is given another word from the Lord. And on this day, this very day, as he says, 
the day which we know in history to be January 15th, 588 B.C., Babylon began their siege of Jerusalem. This was the day that Ezekiel had been pointing to and warning of for years, right? Not just he, but Jeremiah back in Jerusalem had been warning the people there that this was going to happen. During their exile here in Babylon, the Jews would go on to observe, after this took place, they would go on to observe this day as an annual feast to remember this event. Remember how painful it was to them. And that will mean something as we move through the remainder of this chapter. Now again, remember, Ezekiel is some 300 miles from Jerusalem at this point. They're in captivity. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook, there was no Instagram, no other form of social media available to him or anyone else there. He didn't have FedEx, he didn't have UPS, he didn't have the U.S. Postal Service. He didn't even have the Pony Express. He had no direct communication with the king or with the Babylonian military. There is no way that he should have known this siege was taking place until perhaps months later. There's certainly no, no way that he should have known that it was happening the day that it happened, right? Yet he was fully aware of what was going on in Jerusalem on the very day that this siege began. Only God could have given him that information. Now this siege would last 18 months, roughly 18 months. Not because God was unable to accomplish what He said that He'd do in, in a day or in a, a week, but instead because... God continued to offer a form of mercy and grace to the people there while He was simultaneously bringing down judgment in such a long siege. Not only was Ezekiel here to inform the people there in Babylon of the siege taking place in Jerusalem, he was also to inform them and further explain to them the reason and purpose for this judgment. And so he does. So God gives him a parable to speak to the people and to explain that parable. So beginning in verses 3b, where it says, set on the pot, Ezekiel is given this parable. Set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in it the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with the choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also its bones in it. And the remainder of this section through verse Verse 14 will continue to piggyback off of this parable. Ezekiel will continue to explain this parable, and God will continue to use this parable to explain what is going on there in Jerusalem. So we have here the picture of a cooking pot. Uh, If you want to, you can picture a large cauldron, maybe, or if we want to think of today, maybe just a large cooking pot on your stove. The pot represents the city of Jerusalem here. The pot was made ready by putting water in it to boil, and then the best of the meats or the best of the best ingredients, the choicest lamb, the choicest meat of the lamb, and the choicest bones of the lamb were all taken and they were put inside this pot. By by giving us this parable and specifically talking about the choice pieces, the good pieces of meat, Ezekiel through God is drawing really back to chapter 11. If you recall back in chapter 11, at the beginning of that chapter, Ezekiel wrote this, he says, "...the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway there were twenty-five men." So the Spirit took Ezekiel to Jerusalem. He, he was not in Jerusalem. He didn't, we, we covered this, but just quickly, he didn't physically go back to Jerusalem. The Spirit took him in his spirit to, back to 
Jerusalem and he sees this, what's going on. He sees what's going on in Jerusalem and, and the Lord shows him the entrance of the gateway. There were 25 men and I saw among them Jazaniah the son of Azur and Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, this time is not near to build houses, the city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Now, the, that statement was coming from the false prophets, from the, the leaders who were, were falsely leading the people back in Jerusalem to make them think that they were safe in Jerusalem, that nothing they needed to fear nothing. It wasn't time to, to build houses as Jeremiah had told the people he'd sent to the captivity, captives there in Babylon. Build houses. You're going to be there a while. Make a life there. This is not about to end. It's going to, you're going to stay in Babylon for a while. They, they told him, no, that's not going to happen. Don't, don't, don't build houses. You don't need to worry about that. And this city, this, this city of Jerusalem, it's going to protect us. This cauldron was to be a, a place in, that would protect them in their minds. This it would be a place where the best meat, as they thought of themselves, would be placed to protect it. Them being the choice meat would be placed in there in that cauldron, that city of Jerusalem would protect them. So the people of Jerusalem, through their leadership, thought they were superior at this point. They thought that they had been spared because the truly, they were truly the godly people of Judah, right? They were the people of Judah that God was happiest with. While all those other captive people were taken captive and killed in battle, their brothers and sisters were taken and killed in battle or, or taken off to Babylon in captivity, they instead had, had been shown to be faithful to God or ac- accepted by God while the rest of them had been rejected and they were lesser than they were. These captives were the scraps then, while those left behind in Jerusalem were the choice cuts of meat. So God gives this parable to directly address their arrogance. He says, you, you choice meats, or you prime cuts, you best of the best, you will go into this pot full of boiling water. Being put in this pot of boiling water was not just an indictment of their arrogance and wickedness, it was also an indictment of their trust in Jerusalem. God is taking that picture of the cauldron and basically turning it on their head. Not only did they, these people again think that they couldn't be touched because they were the, the best of the best, They thought because the temple was there in Jerusalem. They thought because they were in Jerusalem, they would be safe. It was impenetrable. It couldn't be touched. And as long as they lived there and stayed in the city, then they would be safe. But God tells them He's going to use the city itself to exact the full measure of their punishment on them. Instead of keeping them safe in the city, the city would ensure their their destruction. The bullying meat in this pot was a statement as to the ferocity of the judgment on the people of Jerusalem that would come through the invasion of Babylon, which God would bring on them. And in light of this parable, God then issues a grim warning to them in verses 6-8. through He calls them this, this bloody city Jerusalem. The siege had begun, but the judgment again would last, right? It, it, it would last for months, and it would consume them. God again uses this language of a bloody city to describe Jerusalem. He will do this again in verse 9, but just to remind you of why God calls Jerusalem the bloody city, there was no recognition of God or His law by the people of Jerusalem at this point. And so because of that, all kinds of wickedness was common, including murder. Bloodshed was a normal part, everyday life, 
there in Jerusalem. Because of greed, as we've read before in previous, in previous chapter, because of greed and bloodlust, there were people bringing false witness about others to get a death sentence that wasn't deserved. There were judges allowing themselves to be bribed to hand out these death sentences. And worse than all of that, the worst part of the bloodshed and the wickedness taking place was that, that many of these people were putting to death their own children in sacrifices to false gods. So idolatry and murder were hand in hand there in Jerusalem. Ezekiel states that this pot, it had corrosion in it. That it, it and that, that's, that's not a bad translation, but I think a more literal and maybe a, a better translation is, is that there was, it was rusted. It, it was like what we would picture of, a, of rust. The whole pot was rusted, corroded as we see here. The pot, the city of Jerusalem was good for nothing at this point. Again, it was rusted, it was corroded. The the city was meant to be a light to the world, the place where God's very presence dwelt in the temple, a place where kings who loved Yahweh and sought Him would rule and lead the the other nations as an example of godliness and, and holiness. Instead, Jerusalem had become as corrupt and wicked as the barbaric city of Nineveh that we described earlier, we talked about earlier, who is described the same way, as a bloody city. The picture of, of these pieces here in, in, our, in verses 6-8, through eight, these pieces being taken out one by one is a picture of those who were not consumed in the siege, how they would be taken anyways. They would be taken no matter how much money they might have had, no matter how much power they thought they had, they would still be taken. They would be brought off into captivity despite their feelings of arrogance. No one would be better or less deserving than this ju- of this judgment at this point, at the end of, of this siege. And the same people who look down on those already in captivity would soon be joining them. In verse 7, God indicts Jerusalem here, that bloody city, for shedding blood and doing it in the open without even trying to hide it, is what He talks about here. It, look, if the blood went into the dirt, then you could try and cover it up, right? It could be soaked up in this dirt. Somebody might try to pretend it would never happen. Actually, according to Leviticus 17, the, the law required that if a sacrifice was, was given, that the, any blood be poured out onto the ground and covered up and not, not to be left out. But that's not at all what was going on here with these people in Jerusalem. God would obviously know whether they tried to cover up their sin or not, this, this wickedness or not. He knew their culpability and their, their actions. But these people didn't care. They shed blood. They put it on the rock as we see, which would be easily seen. They exposed it for all to see as if they were proud of it. The evidence of their murders are open and obvious. And they didn't care. So God's wrath, He says, has been kindled against them. And even though they might try and hide the evidence once the siege started, once this judgment began to be poured out on them, once they realized God's judgment was actually coming for them, for their wickedness, God says He was going to sit on that rock and He would keep it from being covered up. There would be no covering up this sin. Their sin would remain obvious and it would, they would pay for it. Look, as we think through this, Remember, this is the, the third, what, what Ezekiel is describing here and what is going on this day in Jerusalem. It is the third wave of attack by Babylon. It, this will eventually result in the third wave of captivity. It's often re- described or, or talked about. 
most of the land of Judah by this point had already been attacked and had already been conquered. Judah was paying tribute to Babylon, and in, in many ways they were already conquered, right? Common sense then would seem to tell those left behind in Jerusalem and the surrounding area that God was not happy with them. That the many prophets who had warned that this would happen, they hadn't lied. And, and so Jeremiah, still prophesying there to the people, was not lying either about this final destruction of Jer- Jerusalem. They would pay for their wickedness. But in spite of the destruction brought on by the earlier attacks, the guilt remained in the city, the wickedness remained, and it seemed to even increase. They did not learn. They did not believe. So God says that His wrath was roused to take vengeance. Look, I can't begin to describe how being on the wrong side of God's wrath is the worst place possible. There is no worse place and there is no worse outcome than being on the other side of God's wrath. The description of the totality of this judgment continues on in verses 9-14. through 14. Ezekiel gives a, a second woe warning to this bloody city. God would stack wood on wood to make fire burn hot and long. The city and the people would be purged and cleansed. The city itself would be purged. After all of the choice meat and bones and spices had been burned up, the pot is to be put back on the fire, the, the fire empty. The corrosion which had built up within the city, within that, that pot, would be burned up in this fire. The city of Jerusalem then, the picture here, would be burned and the temple destroyed. And we know that to be true. We know that happened. What was once a glorious city one which the queen of Sheba had visited just to see its glory and to see the greatness of her king would soon lay in ruins because of her sin and wickedness. Even more heartbreaking is verse 13 to me where God says that He would have cleansed them before, but they would not be cleansed. Meaning that God would have taken away their iniquity and their wickedness before now and He would have left them in their land and they would have prospered had they repented and wanted to be cleansed. I want you to think of Psalm 51, that Psalm of David where Nathan comes to him and tells him, he confronts him of his sin with Bathsheba. And David cries out to God in that psalm after being confronted for God to create in him a new heart, to cleanse his heart of iniquity. David showed the heart of a true child of God there in that psalm as he cried out for God to, con- to cleanse him after being confronted with his sin. And God tells the people that this all could have been avoided and they could have continued in the blessings and protection that He would have provided had they done as David. Had they been willing to be cleansed. Had they wanted that new heart. But they refused to be cleansed willingly. So now God would do it against their will and He would not hold back until His fury was satisfied. Again, this is a place we do not want to be. On the other end of God's fury, which will not end until it's quenched. They would be judged for their deeds, we see. There would be no changing God's mind. No going back. As much as they might cry out in the time of despair for the next 18 months, God would not stop this judgment. 
You can look to where Jeremiah was told not to pray for the people of Judah. There in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah was a, a man of, of good and he was a good man and a godly prophet who, who had prayed for the people there. Prayed for his wicked generation that God would spare them, that he tried to intercede on their behalf at various times. But in chapter 7, God, after condemning the people of Judah for their wickedness, he turned to Jeremiah and in verse 16 he told Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do, not see what they are do, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. Upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. That was the promise through Jeremiah of what was going to happen, which we see beginning here in chapter 24. But God had told Jeremiah there, don't pray for inter- to, to intercede. Don't pray for, the, for their... T- sins to be forgiven for me to stop this. And that's exactly what Ezekiel says here. What God tells Ezekiel, I I will not relent. I will not stop. What I have spoken will come to pass. Again, they would stand for their deeds, for their acts of wickedness, and they would pay for them. Beginning in verse 15, we read, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet, You shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not allow. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put on your shoes, or put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean to us, that you were acting thus? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus says Ezekiel to you, be... Excuse me. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done you, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. On that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be mute." So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So, in verses 1-14, through 14, Ezekiel is given this sermon. He's given this word from the Lord. And then, in verse, beginning in verse 15, God delivers more news to Ezekiel personally. He gives him really devastating news. I, I, I think I said this, I think I was the one that said this before in a previous sermon, I think early on in, in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel is one of the most demonstrative, he's probably the most demonstrative prophet in the Old Testament, meaning, in Old Testament, meaning that 
what he was told to preach by God was often done in action form. He often had an action sermon. He had a lot of those sermons. This one will be another action sermon, but this one will cost him greatly. God tells him that when he goes, he is to go and preach this sermon, and then the delight of his eyes will be taken from him as a sign to the people. We see that that is his wife. His wife was about to die. Now, there's no indication that Ezekiel's wife was sick or expecting death here in the text. It seems that she is just taken from him. God tells Ezekiel that even though he is about to, to lose his wife, when it happens, he is not to cry over it, he's not to mourn over it. He wasn't to take part in the normal mourning process at all. And look, as we read through this and we, we study this, you know, our, our natural hearts and minds they see this, and, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but initially it's hard to grasp in some ways, right? We, we see the picture, or we will see the picture that God is, is putting here, is painting here, and He's given for the people. But for God to allow this to one of His faithful servants, it, it may be hard to square in our minds when we first read it and look at it. So let's address that for a moment, okay? We need to see first that we aren't told here that God actually made her sick to prove a point or to, that He was doing it arbitrarily to take her life uh, just to clarify His Word to the people there in Babylon. God did allow or even bring on her death, but it's, it's possible she was already sick. The, the word here uh, that speaks of her, her death that, that is to come on her, it, it, it actually refers to a, a disease so it's possible that his wife was already suffering from some type of sickness leading up to this point. Now this does not indicate that or, or, or excuse me, this does indicate that her death came quickly. So, so I don't think that Ezekiel or his wife were expecting this to happen, expecting her to die. But look, death is often unexpected, right? Many of God's faithful children die suddenly in a car wreck or some other incident. Many of God's faithful children experience the sudden and unexpected loss of a loved one as well. Ezekiel is not alone in this. The difference with Ezekiel and, and most everybody else is that Ezekiel is just told of the death of his wife, the sudden death of his wife, slightly ahead of time, right? Her death and, and those other unexpected deaths, I just mentioned, they serve a purpose, right? Her death will serve a purpose. Those other deaths serve a purpose. Oftentimes they serve multiple purposes, some of which we don't always know or understand. But God does. He, he knows the purpose. And look, God's purposes are always good, right? One lesson we can take from this is that uh, there's no reason to think she's not, she wasn't a, a true believer. She did not follow Ezekiel and, and, and his, what didn't believe in the same way that he did and was a true child of God. And so her death meant she was in a better place anyways, Right? She wasn't in captivity in Babylon anymore. God is a good God who will always work things out for our good. This place is temporary. Death for a child of God is not a bad thing. We don't, we don't seek it. We don't want it for our loved ones, but it's not a bad thing. And one, one day all of us will meet it if God does not return first. Another thing we can learn from this and for us to recognize is that God does not promise us that suffering will be removed from our lives this side of eternity. 
that this was a form of suffering for Ezekiel. There's no question about that. We're told that this was the delight of his eyes, right? I mean, it, it, it seems clear that he loved his wife. But we are told, really, that suffering is part of this fallen world, right? Even for a child of God, and more so for a child of God oftentimes. But God does promise that He will sustain the faithful in the midst of suffering. Ezekiel would suffer pain here through the loss of his wife, the delight of his eye, but God would sustain him. And in fact, Ezekiel would continue to be a faithful minister of God's Word. And that's exactly what we see right after this. Ezekiel preaches this sermon of what's going on in Jerusalem in the morning. He comes back and in the evening his wife dies and then he goes and does exactly what he is commanded or was commanded to do. He does not take part in the mourning process of her death and he becomes that example that God told him to be. What faithfulness, right? I mean... It's easy to read back on, on, on his life and, and you know, what he went through and, and specifically in this situation and just say that. But I mean, try to grasp the faithfulness of Ezekiel in this situation and in his life. Uh, it's hard for me to feel like I would be that faithful, that I would react in such a way. Ezekiel's a wonderful example for us to obey God's Word no matter what. No matter how hard it might be, we are to obey God's Word above all else. In obeying God, Ezekiel gave up the customary funerary rites of the Israelite. Death in any culture is a big deal, and there are always customary rituals which the family and friends observe or go through in, in that mourning process. For the Jew, that meant oftentimes they would tear clothes, they would remove shoes and turbans, perhaps shave their head and put dust and ash in place of their hair on their head. They would wail for the dead. We know that they would even hire professional wailers at times to be part of the mourning process and the burial process. Ezekiel did none of this. So in verses 19-24, through 24, we see where his, his lack of mourning and partaking, partaking in that normal death process was apparent to the people around him. And they knew something was going on. They knew that there was a purpose behind this. By this time, they knew that if Ezekiel was doing something odd then it was because there was a message behind it. He, was, he had a message. So they want to know what that message is. They ask him, what does this mean? What is your message? So Ezekiel tells them the message. Ezekiel's wife here was a picture of Jerusalem. More specifically, a picture of the temple there in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel was a picture of the people there in, in Babylon. Mainly those, those, obviously those captives there in Babylon. Anybody that would come from Jerusalem and be a future captive would probably fall in this category as well. But he's primarily speaking to those already in Babylon, the captives there. Jerusalem was a very special people to the people of, or a special place to the people of Judah, right? And the temple itself was something they took great pride in. She was the delight to their eye, as we read here. It was a place that they, they rightly should have loved and honored and been thankful for. It was the place where Yahweh made His presence known to His people. Unfortunately, though, it had become a place of sinful pride for the people of Jerusalem and all of the people of Judah. They believed that because they had the temple which God dwelt in, they were untouchable. untouchable. Again, you can read uh, that in, in Jeremiah. They put their faith in the temple instead of in God, and they had the audacity to think that because they had the temple of God, 
well then God would accept and allow them to just live any way they wanted to. Warren Wiersbe made this great point concerning this. He said, The presence of the temple in Jerusalem wasn't a guarantee that the city would be saved, especially when what was going on in the temple was contrary to the will of God. In, in quote, the beginning of that quote, I'll just add this, that's what the false prophets were proclaiming, right? They were proclaiming the temple is there, you're safe, God's satisfied with you, nothing to worry about, no problem, we've got the temple. Here's the temple. Their theology then endorsed sin, right? And it promised that God would accept them and accept their sin. So to that, Wiersbe goes on to say, any theology that makes sin easy and divine punishment unimportant is not biblical theology. And I can't amen that stronger. We have so much of that being preached today. That God accepts sin no matter what. That He's, he's okay, he's, he's happy, and divine punishment is not important. It's fine. You just do whatever you want to and live however you want. That is wrong. That is not biblical theology. And we see that no more clearly than here in our text and through the judgment of the people of Judah and there in Jerusalem. Much like their fathers before them, they had put their faith in the temple. Their fathers before him had put their faith in the Ark of the Covenant instead of God Himself. If you recall all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you're familiar with that story, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites, they go to battle with the Philistines. And they were defeated originally. And, and so their immediate answer to that defeat was not to seek God or to pray to Him for deliverance or for victory. It wasn't to trust in Him. Instead, they said this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us, and it may save us from the power of the enemy. So clearly, the people of Israel at that point had misplaced their trust. They put it in an object instead of in God Himself. Even an object provided by God as a blessing to the people was still just an object. It was not God. And so what they were doing was idolatry, right? And their idolatry ended in their defeat. And just like their fathers before them, this misplaced pride and this misplaced faith in the temple and in Jerusalem would lead to the fall of this generation as well. But as they got the news of her demise, as the people back in Babylon, we read, get the news of her demise because of the example that Ezekiel had given through his, the death of his wife, the loss of his wife, the people also were to follow his example and not mourn the loss of Jerusalem, the loss of the temple, and even the loss of their family. They were to follow his example and refuse to mourn the loss of the things they loved. The people in captivity were to accept this judgment. And they were to understand that it was right, just as Ezekiel was, was supposed to do and did and provided as an example to the people. They were to understand that the death of Ezekiel's wife was an act of God and so was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now a big difference is that there's no indication that Ezekiel's wife nor Ezekiel had done anything to bring on her death, right? Other than just it was just a, the will of God and a natural part of, of that life and of her, her life and the end of her life. Her time had come. Yet the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, they were well deserving of that judgment, right? Of that guilt, that they had, they had, the guilt they had and the judgment that was brought on them. Both, though, both the death of Ezekiel's wife and, and the, the judgment that came on Jerusalem, they both had a purpose, and God knew that purpose. And so Ezekiel was to trust God 
in the death of his wife, that he had a purpose behind it and, and that it was a good purpose. It was God's purpose and he was to follow and trust in that. And Ezekiel's example to the people there in Babylon was the same thing. There's a purpose behind the ruin of Jerusalem, the death of your loved ones, the destruction of the temple, and they were to trust that. And they were to believe that he was allowing it to come to pass for the good of his people. There's something else to consider here as well. God states that He would profane His sanctuary. Notice He says His sanctuary, right? By profaning His sanctuary, He was also showing that He had left His people. He had put them away for a time. Judah was the the wife of God, but she had died to Him in a sense. He took her and He put her away despite the pain that it caused Him. He did it because it was the right and just thing to do. He did it so they would know that He is the Lord. Charles Feinberg states, No human heart can fathom what this act meant to the heart of God. God had condescended to make Himself known in His temple, accepting godly worship there, ordering the ritual, and protecting the sacred place from foreign intruders. And now, His sanctuary is to be profaned. Verses 25-27 through tells us where God speaks again directly to Ezekiel. And He tells him that on that day, when God takes away the pride from the people of of Judah, when He he finishes the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, a fugitive will come and will tell Ezekiel of this news, will confirm that this has taken place. On that day, we're told that Ezekiel will be able to talk again. Now, God had made Ezekiel mute back in chapter 3. Way back in chapter 3, God told him there in in chapter 3, verse 26, He said, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for they are a rebellious house. This inability was not absolute though. In fact, the very next verse there in chapter 3, God states this, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. So, after chapter 3, from 4 to 24, what we have here, Ezekiel would speak to the people of uh, there in, in Babylon, the captives, the people of Judah there in Babylon, when God gave him these prophecies. He would, he would speak these, these sermons to them. But outside of that, he was mute. God tells him here, though, that he would remain mute in this way until the end of the siege, when Jerusalem falls entirely. And I actually think this indicates that Ezekiel would not speak to the people of Judah for the next 18 months. We don't have another sermon given to Ezekiel here of punishment or of judgment on Israel, on the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel would speak judgment on other nations for the next few chapters. In fact, beginning in chapter 25 until verse chapter 32, God sends... Ezekiel several more sermons uh, that he is to pronounce, pronounce judgment on surrounding nations, but there is no more need to preach or speak judgment on the, the people of Jerusalem at this point. Judgment has come. But when this fugitive comes, he will, and we'll read about that in chapter 33, then at that point Ezekiel will have his voice back and he will actually begin to preach again to the people. But instead of judgment, Ezekiel will begin to preach restoration. And through all of this, God says He's doing this so that they will know I am the Lord. Again, God has a purpose behind this. So a couple things as we, we close. I, I think that this, this passage tells us several things. For every rebel 
to God. There is coming a day when all the warnings that He has given, all of the mercy that He has provided, all the patience that He has shown will be gone. That will not last forever. And every rebel of God that meets that day will stand before God Himself in judgment for their deeds, for their wickedness, for what they have done. They will stand in their deeds just as the people of Jerusalem did. And make no mistake about it, sin will be paid for. Don't think you are fooling God. We will either stand in our own deeds or we will stand in the work of Jesus. Either way, God's wrath on sin will be satisfied. It was either satisfied on the cross in the person of Jesus and His sacrifice, and we will stand in Him and His righteousness and be declared righteous. Or we will stand in our own sin, in our own deeds, and we will spend eternity paying for sins. We must also ask ourselves, are we ashamed of our sins and repentant as David was? Or are we like the people of Jerusalem here that paraded their sins around without any fear of God? Without any care of what God thought or of what He's told us to do or not to do? Make no mistake about it. You're not going to be able to trust in your lineage. You're not going to be able to trust in your denomination. You're not going to be able to trust in this this building, in your biblical knowledge, your nationality, or anything else in this world for salvation from your sins. None of that saves. And none of it will protect you from the wrath of God. And if you don't have a repentant heart, and a true desire to turn away from those sins, especially when confronted with them, but instead you parade them around in pride, you will meet the wrath of God. Let's not forget this either. God's judgment begins with His own people. According to 1 Peter 17, we read, For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? Even if we as children of God, true children of God, are are living in sin, God is not going to allow us to continue to do that without judgment of some extent. We won't pay for it and we won't stand in eternity of judgment. That has been, Christ has paid for that. But there are judgments that come on us here in our life for the sin that we do, especially open and, and willingly and spitting in God's face by doing it. And and we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can just live in sin and be part of this world and not have to face some sort of judgment from God for that. God uses us as an example sometimes to the world that sin is not acceptable. It's not right. He did that with the people of Jerusalem that were His people. He began the judgment there, right? Judgment came on them because it was not acceptable what they were doing. And one day it will come and did come on other nations as we will soon learn on the next, in the next few chapters. And one day the entire world would know that. But judgment begins in the house of God. Let's not forget. Lastly, Jerusalem was full of corruption. We've seen that over and over. 
And as we see in our passage, it was useless by the point that we get to where Babylon has sieged the city. But there is coming a day when the King of Kings will sit on David's throne in that city again. And in that day, the city will be a light to the world. A light that was meant, that it was meant to be from the beginning. The corrosion, the rust, the sin will be cleansed. And her king will sit on it. And the people of Israel will rejoice. And the world will rejoice in that as well. So, no matter the the pain we see here, no matter the wickedness, the corruption we see here, no matter how glim it, it seems in this passage, and as we continue, as we've gone through so many passages of, of judgment and of wickedness and of sin, we can still hold to that beautiful truth. Look, God's Word came true, right? Despite their, the people believing that it wasn't going to and, and the, over, the, the repeated warnings and they just continued to ignore, God's Word did come true in His time when He chose for it to come be fulfilled. And, and we can hold true today just as strongly to the promises of restoration, the promises of a future day of peace and of wonder where the King of Kings will sit on that throne in this, this same city again. We can hold on to those promises just as clearly and strongly as if it's already happened as we saw here in chapter 24 and the destruction of Jerusalem. At the beginning of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we will learn more about that as we continue through this book. But let us look towards that. Let us, let us hope and pray for that. Alright, stand with me please.